Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I am joined by author Nat Cassidy to talk about his latest novel, Nestlings, and horror set in the Big Apple. So welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I love the show. Oh my gosh. I'm very excited to have you here. I <laughs> loved Mary. It was one of my favorite books last year. Oh, thank and you. And we were just on a panel together. It's true. A few weeks ago, talking about horror tropes, which was a lot of fun. That I, I don't want to brag, but I heard that was uh, people's favorite panel of StokerCon. <laughs> and uh, I will not hear otherwise. So... So I'm I glad mean, I was. I loved that panel and it was a very enjoyable conversation. I thought I thought it was a ton of fun. It was just a fun topic. Brian did such a good job he moderating. Really did. Um, you were not kidding when you said you had that list of like ten tropes. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to over prepare. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was like, "Is this a trope?" Getting myself into like a frenzy. Like that's not a trope. This is a trope. No, it's not. Yes, it is. But I feel like we had a lot of fun and a lot of stuff that I think even comes up in Nestlings, which I enjoyed and we can get into. Actually, do you want to tell people a little bit about Nestlings? I can tell people about Nestlings, sure. Uh, and thank you very much. Thank you for, for your very kind words on it and for reading it. Um, Nestlings is uh, my next book, which comes out October 31st of this year uh, through Nightfire. And it is about a young couple in New York, Anna and Reed, uh, and they have an almost one-year-old daughter, Charlie, and they are currently in the midst of just a real run of shit luck. Like, it's just been the worst year imaginable, even, even leading up to this year. It's just been this horrible pocket of time. It seems like their luck has run out. Uh, beloved family members have died. It, it takes place now, too. So, like, they're just coming out of the pandemic and how the pandemic affected New York and living in New York. Uh, Reed's mom just died. Anna uh, had an incredibly difficult time during the child, uh, during child labor, child labor. Uh, child labor is a different issue. Uh, <laughs> childbirth, the labor. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a it was a really uh really difficult process that uh, uh, exacerbated this injury that she almost forgot that she had. And it's wound up uh, basically uh, inflicting her with paraplegia. She's now paralyzed from the waist down, you know, a incredibly rare injury, billion to one shot. And she's uh, feeling incredibly bitter uh, and resentful. She's dealing with postpartum depression and post-injury depression. Uh, and everything is just really, really hard. And then suddenly out of the blue, uh, their name is drawn in an affordable housing lottery uh, at this exclusive New York uh, luxury building, this very famous building called the Detford, just right off right off Central Park West. It's an amazing historic building. Lots of celebrities and fancy people live there. They entered themselves into this, uh, this housing lottery like 10 years ago on a whim, uh, and suddenly their name has come up, and it looks like maybe their luck has turned uh, and that things are going to get better. And Anna is very understandably anxious uh, about the apartment being at the top floor of this very tall uh, skyrise building. Um, you know, she's worried about what would happen if there's a fire. Uh, she has to use a wheelchair and it's just, you know, having to rely only on that elevator is, is uh, very uh, uh, dread inducing. But she decides, fuck it. Let's do it. We've earned this. And they move in. Uh, and then that's it. Nothing bad happens. And it's a really lovely story and uh, not a horror novel at all, um, <laughs> except for everything that happens after the second chapter uh, when things get really terrifying. 
Um, uh, I'll, I'll leave it there for spoilers, but as you can imagine, like, uh, uh, this is not the, uh, the blessing that it appears to be and, uh, various horrifying things happen from there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I... <laughs> it's like, of course, absolutely nothing bad happens. We know no. how this goes. No, of course. Like, you know, it's the, I think this will be really good for us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That wonderful trope that we love so much. <laughs> We just need to change our location yeah. and it'll solve all our problems. <laughs> I've taken this job at this hotel in the middle of the Colorado Rockies and it's just going to be for one winter and it's going to be great. It'll be really good for us. Yeah. So you have notes, like author's notes in Mary and Nestle. <laughs> I love them and I think Thank people you. really connect to them. Like I, when I hear people talk about Mary, they really connect to the author's note. I think it does add a, you know, a whole layer when you're finished reading the story and like, okay. Yeah. I mean, Mary, it's before, but. Yeah, Mary's got both. Mary's got yeah. the, the author's Sand- note sandwich. A sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Of, you mentioned reaching out about, you know, writing from this perspective that is mm-hmm. not your own. And you kind of run into a similar thing with Anna's character in Nestlings as someone who was like recently paraplegic. So what was the most helpful piece of feedback you got when, you know, reaching out to people about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um it's, you know, it's interesting because I, I, one of the things that I was really uh, compelled to write about for, for that character uh, and the, the emotional journey that she goes on is that I specifically wanted it to be a new thing for her. Uh, and, and I wanted it to be an uneasy fit for her. Like as, as a character, speaking of her like backstory and, and, and whatnot, she used to be a professional dancer and then a physical uh, trainer and a personal trainer. And, you know, it's just a very physical person. That's her coping mechanism for life. You know, if she feels stressed out, she goes for a run. Like she's that sort of person. And so what would now needing to use a wheelchair be like for that person? Uh, was was something I really wanted to explore, especially because uh, my as as you know from from the afterwards and uh, nestlings, like my wife was going through uh, this horrible chronic pain that basically left her bedridden for almost a year. Uh, also, growing up, my mom had progressive MS, so I kind of watched as she lost her sort of uh, physical independence and whatnot. Um, and so I've I've had these very close examples in my life of of people dealing with like a recent disability, and I wanted to examine that and kind of uh, uh, dramatize that and explore that. So on one hand, it was very helpful to be writing from that perspective because it wasn't like a lived-in experience that Anna was used to, and I got to kind of learn it with her, which was nice. Um, and so a lot of the the research and interviews and stuff like that that I did uh, were mostly with people who had either lived this way for a long time or uh, had always lived like this. Um, and so most of the really helpful stuff I got was in reminders to be really specific about, uh, her diagnosis and how it's affecting her. Uh, I think like the first draft I wrote was just like, yeah, she can't use her legs. Like it was just, you know, nice and nice and simple and ignorant like that. Uh, and then speaking to like neurologists and, and people who use wheelchairs and uh, the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation in particular was incredibly helpful because they have a ton of resources for like the newly paralyzed uh, and uh, people with paraplegia and, and, and uh, disorders like that. And uh, they were like, OK, well, um, does Anna have feeling in one leg? Does she have feelings in two legs? Does she experience pain still? Like all these things that you actually need to be really specific about because that's going to determine her care and her her PT regimen and like the sort of stuff that she needs at home. 
Um, and so that helped me really narrow down and get, you know, very granular in the experience experiences she was having. Um, there was another really helpful bit of feedback uh, where the uh, um, there's a uh, Anna's uh, uh, physical therapist is a character in the book uh, and in the first draft too. Like she was this really annoying, like flighty kind of also sort of former dancer uh, character who just kind of like flitted about and like had all these aphorisms and stuff like that. And everyone I spoke to was like, nah, your physical therapist is not going to be like that. Like, first of all, you really want someone who's like big enough to actually like lift you up and down and to help you out of your chair and to, you know, do the exercises with you that you're paying them to do. Uh, and also like, there's no way she would be like that flighty and flippant and have all these dumb aphorisms and, and, you know, like, personal trainer mantras and stuff like that. Like this would be someone who's like really grounded and tough and uh, you know, still loving and positive and stuff like that. But, but their relationship would be much different. Uh, and so that character changed completely uh, over the, over the drafting process uh, because of that feedback, which was very helpful. Uh, Cause I think a lot of people did not like her. Uh, <laughs> and now she's, she's kind of a, a lot of readers favorites so far. Yeah. Um, so I, I was connected to her. Yeah. She's great. I love her. Yeah. Um, Nothing bad happens to her either. Everybody gets out of this book okay. They all wake up and they're like, what a weird dream. Yeah, right? <laughs> I love New York. That's how it ends. That's how it ends. Another thing, I don't know if we really want to get into what specific tropes we're covering here, but it is a trope that tends to lean into a lot of like Christian mythology and mm. relics. And we are dealing with Jewish characters, mm. which I thought was really interesting and really fascinating thing to explore. I mean, especially at this time. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that was that was kind of uh, from the get go of this book. Like that was something I was very eager to explore. I'm Jewish, mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I'm a huge lifelong horror obsessive. Uh, just been consuming horror media and stories my whole life, uh, and there was always this thing about vampire stories uh and nestlings is like vampire adjacent um very much <laughs> we acknowledge it's like salem's lot meets rosemary's baby <laughs> um and you know especially with like uh, vampire mythology there's plenty of like modern vampire stories where they're like any religious artifact will do as long as you believe in it or something like that but still like the bulk of classic vampire stuff has that trope of just like a cross is what does it uh, and that is a, it's a weird uh, thing as, as someone who's not Christian to read those stories. And even if you love them, which I do to just be like, huh, what does that mean? Like, what, what are we implying there? Um, that, that doesn't sit uh, entirely right with me. Uh, and so I wanted to uh, just from the conception of this story, I wanted to explore what it would be like uh, for Jewish characters to encounter vampires. Uh, and, and what does that, what does that do? What does that make you, you know, what do we have that works? What, what do our mythologies teach us and our, our cultural heritages teach us and stuff like that? You know, I knew this was always going to be a, a very New York story also. And, and uh, New York is a very Jewish city, too, as, as many anti-Semites love, uh, <laughs> love to acknowledge. Uh, and uh, so, like, I knew that they were all going to be, like, tied together, this sort of feeling of, of cultural outsideness, but also, like, this sort of uneasy home that you find yourself in. Uh, and these these cultural feelings of like not having the right weapons to fight the uh, the the monsters that are attacking you. And it was written again, like during the height of the pandemic in the city. Uh, and that was also when uh, there was this huge upswelling of of uh, of hate crimes. And a lot of them were also 
against uh, Jews. Um, this was like right around when uh, I think I first started writing it right around uh, the Tree of Life shooting happened. Uh, and, you know, you couldn't go to a, a service or anything like that without like armed guards outside of uh, the synagogue and whatnot. Um, and so it all kind of uh, contributed to this, what I'm hoping reads as like a an authentic snapshot of what it means to be culturally, even if not religiously, because religion is not a huge part of this book, uh, but just kind of culturally Jewish in America at this moment and, you know, kind of ground the horror in that real sort of yeah. stuff. I mean, I think it definitely succeeds in that. Yay. <laughs> and I know like one of the ideas we tossed around was doing like Jewish horror. Yay. And I would have gone with that if like the only Jewish horror book I could think of was the tribe. Yeah. <laughs> there's very not a lot. There's <laughs> not I was a like, lot. I have one. <laughs> yeah. And that's a great book. I love that yeah, book. It's yeah. Fascinating. Also New York book, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, very New York. Very, very Hasidic. There's a couple of the one other book that I really was drawn to uh, for this is The Keep by F. Paul Wilson. That is one of the only books I've seen or ever encountered that's like a Jewish slant on uh, on vampirism. Uh, it's it's set during World War II. It's set in like a castle, a literal keep in Romania that the Nazis have taken. Uh, and there's a vampire like creature killing all their men. And so the uh, the SS officer in charge, like, you know, like SS officers do manhandles this like a uh, uh, Jewish historian from a local village and is like, you've got to find out how to save my men. And the cross works on the monster. And it actually mm. sends this character into a kind of spiral of like, what does that, what does that mean? Yeah. And especially at this moment, it winds, there winds up being a, a twist that uh, takes it away from that. And it winds up not actually being like a cross per se or anything about God, which is a fun little trick and kind of uh, avoids the theological questions that it, you know, uh, initially brings up. Uh, but that book always stuck with me. It's just like, uh, um, it's just such a great thing to explore that, that yeah, tension. That um, but yeah, beyond that, there's not a ton of Jewish horror. There's like more Jewish horror happening now. Like Zachary I Rosenberg was, is, yeah. is, is writing stuff and other people as well. I was going to say that. Yeah. Um, and Danielle Trussoni's yeah. book has like a bit of that. And like, even in movies, like the vigil came right. out a few years ago, like, I think it's coming out more now. Like it's an episode maybe we could do a few years from now. I'll do it. You know where to find me. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nestlings is like kind of this ultimate New York, like real estate horror story. And I know in your author's note, you mentioned that there's a certain character that might be <laughs> based off of a real experience you had. So I guess, was that your worst like New York real estate story or like, have you heard like an even worse, crazier story? There's so much I want to say <laughs> uh, about that uh about what i allude to in that author's note but i don't know if it counts as like uh slander or something like i mean it's not it was all true anyone who wants to talk to me in person at like a bar i will tell the full story of what uh nestlings uh is kind of uh fictionalizing because it's absolutely horrific and insane and and i will happily tell you uh off the record um but uh it yeah and that was probably my worst uh new york uh, experience, but not by far. Like I have had, I've lived in, uh, I think 10 apartments, maybe 11 apartments in, in my time in New York city. And, um, several of them have been very, uh, let's say unique, uh, let's say, uh, uh, delightfully anecdotal. My first, uh, my first apartment was maybe 
the second place uh, most insane uh, uh, New York story. I I moved to New York and I didn't have a place to live, so I was just couch crashing. And uh, my first couch that I crashed on was with some some dear friends of mine. It was in uh, like the it was at the border of of Bushwick and Williamsburg. Now it would be considered Williamsburg because Williamsburg is just kind of now becoming all of that area because that uh, is very fancy and sells well. Uh, but at the time, it was kind of the border of Bushwick, uh, directly under the J train. So it was just like this pitch black, no sun, just under a subway line. So just the train going overhead the whole time on this gritty little side street off of Broadway, off of the main strip in that in that area. Uh, and it was a side street that like I could literally call our pizza place and order pizza and give us our address. And they'd be like, I don't know where that is. And oh I'd say gosh. like, look out your window. You can see me. Like it's <laughs> this street. Like nobody knew where we were. It was also right across the street from uh, Woodhull Hospital, which at the time, and probably still to this day, but certainly at the time was a pretty grungy uh, uh, hospital that had a big uh, mental uh, uh, mental wing, uh, however you want to call it, uh, that... I don't know what the uh, what the situation was, but there were usually lots of people in like hospital Johnny gowns, just like wandering around outside, uh, like screaming at themselves, and like clearly uh, people who were going through things that should have been like inside in the hospital were yeah. just kind of allowed to like roam around outside. Um, the uh, and, and and I should say, I was sleeping on this couch, and then my friends were like, "We're moving." this place is insane. Do you want to take over our lease? And I was like, yes, I have nowhere else to go. So I wound up living here. Uh, and, uh, uh, so you got, you got the mental hospital, you got the train tracks, you got, um, it was a railroad apartment, two apartments on each floor. The, uh, uh, ours was one side and then we had neighbors on the other side and we actually shared a backyard. So we had like outdoor space, which is, you know, unheard of in New York, except our next door neighbors are across the hall neighbors rather, uh, were, raising uh pit bulls to fight so they were raising fighting dogs and uh they were also raising chickens so the backyard was full of dog shit and chickens uh and we could hear the stud pit bull uh they would have it mate in their bathroom which shared a wall with our bathroom and the uh the stud pit bull also had like a lung disorder or like some sort of infection and so we would just hear it through the walls having, you know, dog oh sex. God. And then also this like, <laughs> just like this horrible retching noise because it couldn't breathe. Uh, and um, they also had a, like a, like a 10 year old kid or something like that, who something was clearly wrong with him. And it was, it was horrible. But he just like, he woke up every day sobbing like that just horrible, like gut cleansing, sobbing. So we have, you know, and then this kid just, and then the chickens, uh, there were huge rats, uh, in our kitchen, uh, that you could like, it was a railroad apartment. We were on one side, the kitchen was on the other side and we could hear the rats chewing in the garbage from our bedroom all the way across the, uh, uh, the, uh, the house, uh, just like, and just top to bottom full of roaches. And I will never forget the moment when I realized I could not live here anymore, where I was in our bathroom, which, which was like a five by five stall with a, with a drain in the ground uh, for the shower. And then like this uninsulated heat pipe next to the toilet. So you would burn your skin if you had to sit on the toilet. And I'm like brushing my teeth, trying to avoid the heat pipe. 
And I looked down and there was a roach like two inches big on my foot. Uh, and I just kind of kicked it off. It was like, get, get off my foot. And then I had a moment of, that's not the right reaction. Like, I, I should be horrified that there was a roach that big on my foot. This is not good for me to live here. And so eventually we had to leave. But we were only paying like 300 bucks a month. So uh, I think now apartments in that same building, which has been renovated. Uh, I checked on uh, uh, Street Easy. Uh, I think they now go for like $3,500 a month or something like that. That is, oh my God, I can't even fathom that. Yeah. So that was that was a pretty <laughs> great first apartment uh, in New York. In the words of Taylor Swift, welcome to New York. It's waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a threat. That's true. It just needs to be put to like core music, like welcome to New York. Right. It's, it's waiting, waiting for, for you. <laughs> well, what about New York City? makes it a great setting for horror it's a great question uh because it's so it's so tried and true i think tell me if you feel differently but i think there there are two things for me that make new york such a great horror setting um the first is that uh it's a city full of I mean, maybe there's three things. First is the obvious one. There's just so many fucking people. There's just so many people and there's so many things. There's just so much there that like, of course, there could be horror there too. Like it just makes it, everything is here. Um, why not a monster or, or several? Uh, but also there's this energy in the air where, you know, obviously people are born and raised in New York um, and quite a lot of them, but there's also a huge percentage of the population here and, uh, and it's people who moved here and you don't just like move to New York on a whim. Usually you move here like to do something, to chase something uh, or because you have to or because of a, a, a relationship you're in or something. So there's some reason why you're moving to this very inhospitable, expensive place. And so that contributes to this feeling in the air of, of ambition and drive. And, you know, it's not an easy place to live uh, emotionally or economically or logistically. I don't know how people move here. I don't know how I did. Uh, you just kind of do. Um, but so it just contributes to this energy in the air where we're all just kind of at the same time, like going, oh, my fucking God, what are we doing here? Uh, uh, and but also like I have to be here. And so it just kind of the stakes are always extra high here. Um, and the other thing I think that makes New York such a great location for horror um, and and for stories in general, but especially for horror Um and I apologize in advance because this is a really fucking like actory thing to say. Uh, but I was thinking about it and I was like, this, this makes sense to me. So I'm going to see if I can articulate it in a way that makes sense to someone who's not me. But living in New York reminds me a lot of, uh, of, of working on film and TV. Um, and I say film and TV, especially because like, it's very hard to like lie on camera. You have to like, give as authentic a performance as you can on camera. Uh, but the thing is, at, acting, especially screen acting, is like this this weird double-edged sword where you also have to do very technical things and repeatable things. You know, you have to make sure if you move that, that prop in the master shot with your right hand, you've got to always move it with your right hand. And like, you've got to make sure to like cheat towards the camera uh, so that all of your face can be seen and lit and stuff like that. While also trying to give this authentic like life sort of portrayal 
while there's like 30 people around you with equipment and all praying that you don't fuck it up and have to do it twice because uh, everyone's you know very annoyed and you're running behind schedule. So it's, it's just like this weird feeling of trying to give a lifelike performance under very artificial uh, 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 circumstances. Um, and, you know, especially with the camera, which is often like right there, you're just aware of this eye that you have to play towards, but you can't play at. You can't like play something big for the camera because it'll look horrible and it'll read really inauthentic. And at the same time, when you live in New York City, you're trying to lead this life. You're trying to like live your life. And there's a part of you that just can never forget, much like you can't forget in your screen actor training, that there are eyes on you all the fucking time. You're just never alone. Even when, uh, you know, you feel like, even when you're like at home in your apartment and you're like closing out the world, like you've usually got a neighbor just like a thin fucking bit of like uh, drywall uh, 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 away from you. And so there's just, just always this feeling of the presence of people uh, and the, the, you know, the kind of intangible push of other people and the eyes of people. And again, much like screen acting, eventually you reach a point where you get used to it. Like you never forget it. It's never, the knowledge is never far from your mind, but you kind of learn how to like compartmentalize it and move it to the side and give an authentic performance or something like that. Or, you know, especially as like a 20 something in New York, you finally have that moment of like, well, I'm going to have a breakdown on the train. I'm just going to start sobbing on the train in front of like 900 people, or I'm going to throw up on the subway platform and be at like my most physically vulnerable right now. And eventually you're just like, this is it. Like, this is what it is like to live in New York City. Um, and so that just contributes to this, this weird, uncanny vibe that every interaction has in New York City, where it's like, you're never fucking alone. There's always someone <laughs> or something there. Uh, that is watching or listening or something like that. So it's it's just, it's a great uh, environment for dread. <laughs> I love that answer. It just reminds me of those those TikToks where someone will like scream in the middle of a street in New York, and they're like, "All those people that turned around, they're not from here." Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> Fuck, someone's screaming on the street. If anything, don't look because you don't want to engage. I don't want to be brought in. Yep. Yep. Leave me be. Yep. Um. It's funny because mine is kind of the opposite, that usually there should be a safety in being mm. around so many people. Like when people think of horror, they think of like cabin in the woods or like right. suburban street, like you're alone. No one can hear you scream. And it's like your people can hear you scream. Yeah. And it still doesn't save you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was that was something I really tried to lean into with Nestling. Exactly. Yes. It was just like that feeling of like. Yeah, you can call the fucking NYPD. You can like yell to your to the guy who runs the deli and like you're, those still aren't going to save you. Yeah. And I think that's so effective in horror because it's not relying on like cheap cop outs. And like, I love that about like urban settings. And, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, your cell phone works here. We're not like in the middle of nowhere. Right. <laughs> your resources are still here. Right. And they're still not going to come through for you in the end. Unless you have AT&T because that always fucking drops out. Um, yeah, I loved that about Scream 6, actually. Like, Scream 6 felt like the first, like, good New York slasher in a very, very long time. Maybe ever. Because uh, there were... I was going to ask you. Okay. Yeah, it it felt... I mean, there were some things about it that, you know, obviously are, are uh, you know, had to be done for, like, narrative sake or whatever. But, like, the whole, like, bodega scene where they're, like, shooting out and, you know, having a shootout in the, in the deli. Um, I loved that because it... 
uh, it really uh, shows you like a how little physical space you usually have to maneuver. Like it's a it's a city full of stairs and tight corners. Like there's everything is just kind of cramped. Uh, and also, I loved that it uh, you you do have that weird isolated feeling in New York. But at the same time, there's also usually someone who is there to help you or like multiple people who are there to help you. Uh, and uh, so there was something very, I thought, effective about, uh, you know, the the guy who runs the deli, like trying to help them. And then he's dead, too. And then then it's that feeling of like, oh, fuck, the guy who was going to help me, the the Good Samaritan, the, the New York Good Samaritan, he's now gone. Uh, where do I go? What do I do? Um, yeah, it's it's so it hit the fan now. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. There was a lot of really good sequences in that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, with all the slasher sequels that get set in New York, which one is the least <laughs> New York? Which one are you like, that is obviously not New York? <laughs> uh, I would have to say uh, Jason Takes Manhattan actually takes place in Manhattan. Uh, they actually got to film in Times Square, but only for, like, five <laughs> minutes. 90% of that movie is on a fucking boat. Uh, so that to me is like, the, that's the worst one. And it also like, I, I forgive it though, because it has that weird, uh, 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 twist at the end that apparently the New York city, uh, sewer system gets flushed with like radioactive poison every day, apparently. Uh, so I guess that's something I didn't know about the city I live in. Uh, it's strong enough to melt a human being. Um, <laughs> that, that didn't quite feel authentic. Um, there were things about Cloverfield too that really pissed me off. Uh, but Cloverfield actually, like, it does capture a certain kind of New York existence, especially like, you know, uh, rich white twenty-something partying uh, existence in in New York. It captured that. But there were so many uh, uh, geographical uh, shortcuts and things yeah. that just could not happen. Like, I think they walk up, like, the Lexington Avenue line and they end up in, like, uh, uh, the West Side. Or, you know, like, little things like that, that when you've lived here, you're just like, that's fucking bullshit. That is not right. Uh, it's like, I'm from California and every time Party in the USA comes on and I'm like, if you are coming from LAX, the Hollywood sign is not on that side. Yes. Yes. It's fucking infuriating. Yeah, it's like saying like I got in my car and I flew to uh, outer space. It, like it's it's just it's this is not the ending of Greece. It does not work that way. I've heard that with like Hellraiser three too because it was um, it's like vaguely New York City. I don't think they ever. I don't. It's been a while since I've yeah. seen it. I don't. They really say. <clears throat> Sorry, but um, yeah, like the way those streets are laid out, they're so wide. And I looked. I'm like, this was filmed in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know uh, 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 on your list of movies, Midnight Meat Train is on there too. And that is also, like, that's one of those weird movies where it's like, these are fucking Canadian subway trains if ever I have seen them. Like the, the MTA does not look like that at all. But it had a green tint. Isn't that what New York looks like? <laughs> <laughs> Everything is a wash and a sickly green. I think we have a good list of New York horror movies here. I know we've mentioned a few, but... Um, I feel like we got to mention like American Psycho and Rosemary's Baby. Right. Those are classics. Those feel very authentic. Was Rosemary's Baby filmed in New York? Well, it was. Yeah, it was, the exteriors were filmed at the Dakota. Okay. Um, they did not film inside the Dakota, but the exteriors at least are. Um, that is. And that obviously was one of the, the big uh, uh, things that I based uh, the Detford, mm -hmm. the building in, in yeah. Nestlings on. 
Although the Dakota is relatively short. I think it's like eight stories or something like that. Is it really? Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty small building um, that I that I almost got to tour, and then the timing didn't work out. But I one of these days. Are they weird about that? Yeah, especially like you know, post John Lennon, they're very uh, they're very closed off. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like a lot of people inside. I guess that makes sense. And then ones I've really only seen once, but I feel like we also had to mention Chud and Maniac. Right. I've only seen the old one. I haven't seen the new Elijah Wood Maniac. It's fun. It's re- I mean, it's fucked up, but it's really good. And one that I'm just realizing we didn't uh, put on either of our lists is Ghostbusters. Obviously. Oh. Duh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, that's a very New York movie. And like authentically feeling New York. Um, <laughs> Chud is so great. I love Chud. Um and uh, that's very authentic to the uh, the sewer system. Like we have a lot of cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. I was gonna ask. Yeah, and again, it's just a thing you get used to. This is some, part of living. Some in of New my York. best friends are chuds, <laughs> and they're great people. Mm-hmm. I don't eat with them, but other than that, um, I also have fourteen oh eight on here, which I guess yes. takes main takes place mainly in a hotel room. Right. In the Dolphin Hotel, which is not real, but I love I love that you picked that because that is that is also a great New York movie. In that, like, uh, there is something very dreadful about when New York gets quiet. When you're in a hotel or when you're in a high rise, unless the building is like super new and super well treated, like there's always some street noise or something like that. But there are moments when it's just quiet. And it's weird. It's really weird. And that movie is so good and effective at like that, that claustrophobia and that uncanny sort of feeling. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I love that movie. It's really good. And I think also, I mean, New York is such an old city. So like, I feel like every building has like a history, but to be oh, yeah. at a place where it's like, oh no, even I won't go in here. Yeah. So many things have happened that I will not set foot in that room. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is also one of Stephen King's best uh, it's one of his best short stories. It's also weirdly one of his best audiobooks. I remember, I, and for those that don't know me, I'm a fucking a Stephen King obsessive. Um, uh, so I've, I've read everything he's ever published and, and then some. Uh, and there was a period in the 90s, in the, or it might have been like 2000 or something like that, where he had this three-story audiobook called Blood and Smoke, where it was three stories based around cigarettes. Uh, and they were all, they, they all eventually wound up into Everything's Eventual, his uh, his uh, collection. Um, but it was uh, In the Death Room, 1408, and um, the uh, 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 Lunch at the Gotham Cafe. And uh, the 1408, it's it's still the audiobook of, uh, that's in the Everything's Eventual audiobook, so you can hear it. Uh, but this was before Everything's Eventual. It only existed, like I only had it on tape. Uh, and it was Stephen King reading it. And he's a great reader of his stories. And, it, you know, he's just kind of, he lulls you around with his with a little Mainer accent. And, and it's just this, like, super scary story. And then it ends with the most, like, alien, harsh saxophone riff you've ever heard. And it's the only time I've ever encountered a jump scare in an audiobook. And it <laughs> fucking scared the shit out of me. And I love it. So I'll always have an extra soft spot in my heart for 1408. I love that. You know, I've been listening to a lot of Stephen King audiobooks, and there are just like I'm because I'll be following along in the book, and there are just random like sounds, and I'm like, yeah. there's not a paragraph break here. This isn't yeah. a chapter. Yeah. What is this for? Yeah, it's a weird thing that a lot of producers decided to indulge in with his works. Like, okay. go throw we're, up gonna, a... we're gonna need to add a little 
add a little saxophone here. Hell yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about the saxophone that it's just so New York to me. There's there's a moment in Nestling Stew where someone is busking on a saxophone and it's this moment of like acknowledged like, oh, this is a really New York cliche moment. <laughs> uh, and yeah, there's just something about a saxophone that's so... It's, it's Springsteen and Billy Joel, I'm sure. They just like yeah. make you feel New York. <laughs> or Baker Street. That song Baker Street. Just feel like New York. Also, cigarettes seem to be a big theme in Stephen King because I was thinking you were going to say like Quitters Inc. Or, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, um, what's the one? I'm sure y'all know the one where they get mad about all the smokers taking like smoke breaks. Yeah, the the what is that? The the ten o'clock people. Yes, that's it. Yeah, I knew you would know it. Yeah, <laughs> and Quitters Inc. is also uh, in Night Shift along and in Cat's Eye along with the Ledge, which takes place on a ledge outside of a New York apartment building, which is also great. Yeah, I was thinking of that story too. Sometimes I get that story confused with 1408 and I think they're the yeah. same one and then I'm like, no. Yeah, because they both have very, especially the movies have very similar shots of like someone crawling out onto the ledge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any New York horror movies you would want I to talk do. about? I do, I do. I I have too many. Uh, <laughs> and so to like break it up a little, I kind of put it into two buckets where there are like, there are the like, gritty New York horror movies that are like, Mm -hmm. you know, even just by virtue of time period, they tend to be like 70s and 80s, where it's just like New York is this like sweltering, dirty, sort of dangerous place. Uh, And those are movies like uh, Larry Cohen's Q, The Winged Serpent, which uh, is great. It's a great claymation monster against like the, the Chrysler building. And a lot of that movie, it was shot guerrilla style, too. Um, yeah, so it's, it's very authentic. (laughs) They did get permission, uh, to shoot inside the Chrysler building for like a heartbeat. (laughs) Uh, but that's a fun little glimpse. Um, and, uh, that's, that's great. It's, uh, what is it? Uh, Quetzalcoatl is, is Q, the winged service. So it's like this, uh, I forget if it's Incan or Mayan, uh, monster just alighting on the city. Um, the Wolfen is a great, that came out in like 1981. And that is just literally, uh the nypd versus werewolves and just like ravenous werewolves i believe they wind up on like staten island albert finney is the the head cop and it's just so it's just so new york it's just so fucking like new york against werewolves and it's great um and it but it also like does kind of give that give that sort of feeling as books like the tribe do where there are, you know there are just so many communities in new york and the wolf and these werewolf creatures are just one of these communities in New York. Um, and it's great. Like, it, it really, it, you, you feel that in that movie in a really uh, authentic way. Um, there's uh, The Sentinel. Is, that's also a great book. And The Wolfen is actually a great book, too. Whitley Stryber. Uh, and The Sentinel is Jeffrey Convitz. Um, and The Sentinel kind of falls in with um, with Rosemary's Baby. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's fancy apartment building horror. Uh, so it was also very uh, influential to nestlings, but that takes place in Brooklyn Heights uh, and this like supermodel gets an apartment in this fancy building in Brooklyn Heights that just happens to be a portal to hell. Uh, and oh <laughs> it's great. It, and it's really scary. And it's also um, it's it's just a cavalcade of of New York actors at the time. So like Christopher Walken's in it. Um, there are a couple others that I'm that I'm blanking on. Um uh, but it, it, you watch that movie and like you get like sucked into the horror of it. And then it's just like yet another 
70s or 80s era New York character actor. And you're just like, holy shit, everyone is in this movie. It's very satisfying. Um, uh, there's another wild movie, uh, Basket Case, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is, that is a lot of really authentic to the time uh, Times Square. And it's just like so, it's literally just like the director with like a handheld camera. The movie was made for like a couple thousand dollars. It's so cheap and it's so good. It's so fucking weird. There's so much screaming. It's maybe the most scream-filled movie uh, you could ever want to see. Everyone is just like shrieking at the top of their lungs. Uh, and most of the cast like aren't actors too. So it's just, it's such a great <laughs> New York vibe. Um, and Jacob's Ladder is one that people forget is a is a New York movie, but it's very Brooklyn. Uh, and like a lot of it like takes place in uh, in like the, the subway tunnels and stuff like that. And it's just the Jacob's Ladder, I think, captures a very authentic New York experience um, where obviously it's about, um, you know, I won't I won't spoil the twist for those that haven't seen it. But like the, superficially, it's about a, a Vietnam vet dealing with really severe PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it does capture even if you don't have uh, <laughs> Vietnam related PTSD, like it does capture this. Uh, this experience that I think everyone who like lives and spends their twenties, especially in New York will experience where you're just at like a party and things get too insane. And like, you start to lose your grip on reality. Uh, There's an incredible sequence in Jacob's ladder where like, I have, I have felt like I have experienced as well. Just like, you know, the music is too loud. People are too frantic. The room is too crowded. It's too hot. And like, you just feel that like slippage that is terrifying. (laughs) Um, so you've got that bucket of New York movies, but then there's also this bucket of, of like, I want to say like the classier version of New York or like the more uh, like antiseptic, the like less, uh, the less welcoming, the less sweltering version of New York. Um, that is like just as scary. Um, you know, it's a little more refined. It's a little more, um, you know, it's like the more like upper class sort of uh, versions of, of New York. So, so again, there's like Cloverfield, I think captures that really well. Black Swan captures that really well. That sort of like New York city ballet scene and the, just Lincoln center in general. And uh, speaking personally, what it's like is like someone in the arts living in New York and like just fucking losing your mind, trying to make a living out here. And uh, uh, you know, just how, how hard it is mentally um, in those scene, in, you know, those lowercase s scenes. There's a great movie that came out last year called Nanny, um, which is about a, a Senegalese uh, nanny who's working for like these really uh, just awful, gentrifying, rich white parents. And like they're yelling at her for making the food too spicy for their precious little child and stuff. Like it's like that sort of. Uh, uh, dichotomy of the new york experience of like mm-hmm. uh, the immigrant experience but also like the just wealth and fucking uh you know uh, uh just like overpowering alien whiteness of like people who don't belong there and people who are like bleaching the city of its identity yeah. and it's it's immigrant kind of rich identity at that um and that's great it's just a really great like that's what it's like one of those vibe movies that you just kind of feel a character like slowly losing their their center. Uh, but there's also like a lot of great like uh, uh, Senegalese mythology and stuff like that in it too. That's it's really great. Um, and then there's another movie that like I feel like borders the the two buckets uh, that I've kind of uh, described, which is Requiem for a Dream, which is also very. Yeah. Um, there's something about that movie where you can just feel 
the push of class consciousness. And it's a very Brooklyn movie. It's a very Outer Burroughs movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, just like how those two New Yorks really can rip you apart. Like I'm especially thinking of Ellen Burstyn's character who just like wants to, wants to be on a game show, <laughs> you know, just wants to like uh, move, have an experience, have a momentary experience of, uh, uh, of that other side, that, that, uh, that fancier side of New York. And it just, uh, it destroys her. Um, that movie is so upsetting. <laughs> And Hubert Selby is just like a great New York depictor, the guy who, who he wrote the book that it's based on. Yeah, those are those are some <laughs> movies, and there's so many more uh, there that we are. could choose. It's Hollywood's backlot, baby. <laughs> like, why not make it in New York? Gremlins two. We forgot Gremlins two. <laughs> How could we forget that? That's like the quintessential New York movie. I forgot to mention uh, Vampires versus the Bronx. Oh yeah, Was which I haven't it? seen. It's really fun. And uh, when I get into my first pick for my book, I just think those two make a great pair because they're about like gentrification. It's a ton of fun. It's like this gang of kids like against this like gentrifying force. Yeah. Vampires. And the kids are so charismatic like i just had so much fun watching this Ooh, i want to see <laughs> they're this. like learning all their like vampire mythology from blade because he's the best <laughs> <laughs> they're like don't worry i saw this on blade hell yes <laughs> this episode is brought to you by fangoria the world's best horror and cult film magazine since 1979 Listeners can use code Books in the Freezer to get 20% off their order. That includes, of course, merchandise and first time subscriptions and single issues of the magazine. Not only are there tons of articles and interviews about upcoming horror movies, there's a regular segment by Stephen Graham Jones all about slashers called Slasher Nation. So you're going to want a copy. So again, that is code Books in the Freezer. And thank you, Fangoria, for supporting the show. All right, well, should we talk about some books? Yeah, I want to hear more about this book. So that book is When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. The comp for this was like Rear Window meets Get Out, which I think is pretty accurate. I love it. So this is about a neighborhood in Brooklyn that's being gentrified. It's really about a woman named Sydney, and she lives in Brooklyn. And there's a walking tour that goes by her house every day, like the history of Brooklyn. Hmm. And she notices that on this walking tour that uh, the tour guide doesn't mention anything about the notable black citizens. It's this very whitewashed history of Brooklyn. Hmm. And she kind of starts like, excuse me, like you didn't mention this and you didn't mention this. And she's like, well, why don't you start your own walking tour? And she's like, I will do just that. And that is what she does. So um, she starts and she meets up with her neighbor, Theo. Together, they work together and start this walking tour about like the black history of Brooklyn. But as you can imagine, as they start digging into the history, they find some unsavory things Um, and they start to kind of connect dots. Like a lot of their neighbors recently have like moved to the suburbs very suddenly or like, you know, this person was here forever. This person was here for generations. They were like the third generation. There's no reason they would ever leave. But suddenly they're like taking big payouts and leaving Mm. or so they're told. So They're kind of digging into like, is there something more sinister going on here is there like an outside force that's causing this and like how long has this been happening it was very interesting also Alyssa cole is a romance author and i think this is her only 
like foray into huh. like the thriller horror space. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it was very good. And also, if you still want romance, the romance is still there. I'm sold. This sounds amazing. That that, that kind of sounds like uh, Anne River Siddons, uh, who only wrote The House Next Door. Like she had just this one horror novel. It was a classic. <laughs> and then just didn't write in that genre again. That sounds She's like, great. wanted to prove I could do it. I did. Yeah. And now I'm gone. Ooh. <laughs> um, so I had a lot of fun with this. I would say this was room temperature, but it really starts to like ramp up towards the end when, you know, when all the pieces are getting like put together and you're yeah. like okay okay i see where this is going you know it's a conspiracy thriller so yeah the tension really really goes up at the end so that is when no one is watching by Alyssa cole i had a hard time narrowing down my books um so i i i uh i managed to narrow them down i think to four uh uh because there are so many <laughs> but the first one um that uh i wanted to include uh, is Audrey Rose by Frank DeFolita or Felita. I've never, I've never actually heard it out loud, I think, uh, or tried to say it out loud. Um, I don't know if he's still alive. So uh, uh, forgive me either way, Frank. Um, but that is a fascinating book. It was a big influence on Mary, actually, because um, it's one of the few horror novels to deal with um, reincarnation, like directly deal with it. And it's about a, uh, a Manhattan couple, pretty well-to-do Manhattan couple, um, and, uh, they have a daughter who's like 10 and she starts experiencing like these horrific, uh, like, uh, waking hallucinations and screaming, uh, and, and feeling like she's dying. And this super random out of the blue dude shows up and he's like, I know why that's happening. She's the reincarnation of my dead daughter who died in a fire, uh, and died the same day your daughter was born. Um, and it's just this sudden injection of this fucking wow. this this stranger in their lives, um, and you know uh, they do the obvious thing, and they're like, "Please get away from us, dude." Uh, I was just about to ask you. I'm like, yeah. so how, how quickly is this? <laughs> <laughs> what well, what gets really fascinating is like it progresses the way you might think for a little. Like uh, the the girl's situation gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, eventually, he like kidnaps her because he's like, "I'm going to." Uh, you know, I'm going to like exercise or I'm going to put my daughter's spirit at rest and like uh, uh, see if I can uh, uh, solve this situation. It does not go well. He gets arrested and the like second half of the book, and it's not a short book, winds up becoming a, a criminal like courtroom trial uh, where he essentially has to prove in a court of law, it's his only defense, is that she is the reincarnation of my dead kid. And so he has to prove in court the existence of reincarnation. Um, it's fascinating. And like hypnosis is involved and, and all these things. And it gets, you know, pretty heavy on like uh, reincarnation theory and stuff like that. Um, but it's great. And the audiobook is actually fantastic because um, I want to say it's Matt Godfrey uh, uh, narrates it. I'm 99% I'm sure uh, it's Matt Godfrey. And he does an incredible job where like the the girl's screaming, especially towards the end, because it has a very tragic ending, is so upsetting. And like, just it will give you chills listening to it. And the situation, like he does a great job making it actually feel like very authentic and real. Uh, and so like you believe both sides of what is going on and like how horrible it would be to be convinced that that's your reincarnated dead daughter and how horrible it would be to have this fucking rando come in and like overtake your life. But also like your daughter is clearly like not well and something horrible is happening to her. Um, so it's, it's really emotionally compelling. 
Uh, but the reason why I think it's a great New York horror novel specifically uh, is is because of that phenomenon of just a stranger coming up into your life and completely changing the, tra- the trajectory of your life. Like that, oh, wow. there's so many people in New York and you're <laughs> interacting with so many people all the time that that is a, like a very real fear and a very real phenomenon. Like that is something that can't happen. Uh, so it captures that very well. That essential New York experience. Yeah. The fear, <laughs> who, I guess. Who is <laughs> talking to me? New oh God. Possibility. Right. <laughs> Oh man, where would you uh, rate that? Oh yeah, right, right, right. I would say it is, um, it is uh, somewhere between the counter and the fridge. Um, there are some moments that are that are freezer worthy because um, it does get scary, but it is a very long book, and mostly it's an interesting book. Um, it is a very intellectual book, uh, so it's not like the most emotionally engaging at times. Um, but yeah, I would put it. Uh, I would put it on the counter, but occasionally I'd be like, did I put that book in the fridge? And then realize like, oh, I put that book in the fridge <laughs> with my keys. I love it. That's really <laughs> interesting. I feel like I've seen this book. Like, yeah. like this is a book I've seen and now my interest is peaked. Yeah. It's one of those like classic paperback horror yeah. novels that uh, everyone has seen in a used bookstore at one point or other. Probably. Yeah. Kind of like the tribe actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I think like the tribe, I think Valancourt books reissued it. Um, Did it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, my next book is not long at all. It is The Pretty Ones by Anya Allborn. I think it's only like a hundred thirty-ish pages, and I think it's only available as an ebook. I can't oh wow! It's an e-novella. But this takes place during the summer of Sam murders in nineteen seventy-seven. Sold. <laughs> and we're following Nell. Nell's the narrator, but she is a homely girl working at a call center. She's awkward and, you know, we're in her head. And you see that she has a really hard time making friends. There's kind of like clicks at the call center. She like can't get in with these girls. Um, and then these like murders are introduced and it really like changes the vibe huh. of the workplace. You know, like all the girls with brown hair are like freaking out about like, <laughs> we can't go outside. Should we put our hair up? Should we put our hair down? Should we wear hats? Like, I don't know. Like, is that gonna, gonna change anything? Um, there's one girl that shows kindness to Nell and she ends up murdered, which ends up kind of like obviously rocking things at the workplace, but Nell suspects that it's, there's something else more sinister going on. It is a short novel Hmm. and I don't want to give too much away. So I will kind of just leave it there. Uh, but I read this a few years ago and it was right when I was getting into like Anya Allborn at first and i thought it was a really a really fun good time like i think i read this honestly in one sitting like i feel like it is just one of those like one sitting stories i really want anya alburn is one of those authors kind of like adam neville and a little like darcy coates i've read uh, some (laughs) darcy coates and and very much enjoyed darcy coates but like uh anya alburn and adam neville are two authors who and i've read one adam neville book but uh like they have so many books and so many people are obsessed with them that i'm like i'm dying to read them i'm so excited to read them and then i'm also like so intimidated by how many books they have already uh i i need to read brother i know that's like the the one i have to start with i haven't read that one yet and i know that's that's like the one right yeah (laughs) especially on like tiktok people fucking love that book so like i really want to read it uh but she has so many books and i'm i'm hats off to her like i really want to read <laughs> as many as i can darcy coates i i know because like as my last name starts with c 
that's she is how I find if my book is on the shelf because like I just <laughs> go to where the like twenty Darcy Coates books are, and I'm like, okay, that mine should be somewhere around there if it's anywhere. She's uh, a machine too. Yeah, yeah, and great. Like I really loved uh, uh, From Below. I thought that was really, really good. I need to read uh, that one, but I yeah. feel like I, I read one of her books, and they're like, "This is part of like a trilogy." I'm like, "What?" Right. <laughs> Where does this woman find the time? Exactly. I would put this in the in the fridge. It's a pretty pretty fast paced thriller, and I think it's it's a fun read. Okay. Again, like I feel like there's more I want to say, but I can't say it. Yeah. It's like, like I'm like it's inspired by no, I can't yeah. can't say it. Okay. All right, I'm going to read that, and then we'll we'll confab <laughs> off mic, and then I'll tell you all about my landlord. Um, <laughs> former landlord. My current landlord is great. Um, my next book um, is Falling Angel by William Hortzberg. Um, this is another like classic paperback uh, horror novel from the 70s, but it's set in the 50s. It's set in, I believe, 1959. And this is, so if, if people are not familiar with the book already, they might be familiar with the movie adaptation, which is um, Falling Angel, or no, what? Did I say Falling Angel? Falling Angel is the name of the book. Uh, what is the uh, Angel Heart is the name of the movie uh, with Mickey Rourke and oh, wow. Lisa Bonet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Okay. Um, it is a sweaty private detective noir um, and it is like self-consciously pulp. It is very it's like very like Raymond Chandler, very trying to be just a classic yeah detective yarn like a gumshoe yarn <laughs> um unlike the movie which like moves most of it to new orleans uh the book is set all in new york city okay and so it's this great pastiche of like late 50s new york private detective uh tropes and stuff like that uh and it's about a private detective who gets hired by a mysterious client who's like i need you to track down this uh this famous singer uh, who was a, a war veteran who was in a coma and uh, after uh, he got out of the coma, he became a famous singer and like he owes me money and I need you to go find him. And so the private detective starts finding him and exactly as you would think, like it leads him down this this twisting road of, of, uh, uh, of bad acquaintances and, and shady characters and shootouts and chases and stuff like that. And similarly to uh, uh, to the pretty ones, I, I, I won't go into too much uh, description because it's got a massive twist uh, that I don't want to spoil. Uh, but it gets very horror oriented and it is so fucking good. And it is just such a great time period uh, piece of New York. And just that feeling of, again, that sweaty private detective feeling of like there's there's chases in the subway, uh, subway tunnels and avoiding trains and, and, uh, you know, just so many great little like set pieces like that. And it's, I, again, it's probably not very scary. I don't think it's like a scary book, but, uh, I would, I would put it in the fridge. I haven't read it in a long time. I'm sure there are bits of it that have probably aged poorly and there's probably some problematic bits in there as well. So I'm I'm not looking forward to the next time I read it and being like, oh, maybe I shouldn't recommend this book. But for now, <laughs> I remember it very fondly. Uh, so uh, so that's my pick, Falling Angel by William Hjortzberg. Gosh, I love that. I did not know that was based on a book. Yeah, the movie's great. Yeah, it's a great movie. Are very sexy. <laughs> like when you said that, I'm like, isn't that a very New Orleans movie? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The director was uh, Alan Parker, who's British. Uh, and I, th I think he thought that New Orleans would just be like a, a more interesting place to set it. And, yeah. 
Yeah, it's also notorious for being the movie that, because uh, there's a lot of sex scenes in it. It's like, it's very uh, like 90s erotica. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lisa Bonet is the love interest. And I think, I forget if she was like on a different world at this point or like just left the Cosby show or something like that. But it was one of those moments yeah. where Bill Cosby just kind of like inserted himself into it of just like, I don't approve. Uh, and so especially in retrospect to just how fucking horrific a, a human being he was it was one of those moments of like all right you fucking gross human being yeah uh nobody asked you to weigh in on your not actual daughter's uh, uh adult film career not like adult film career but grown-up yeah. film career um yeah. yeah i mean i was like i feel like we should look into people that like have issues like that like the, yeah the dad from seventh heaven you know right like another one Big, right like, moral like jessica beale can't be doing this we yeah have an image to maintain do you listen to You Must Remember This? I do. I haven't listened to that series yet, though. Yeah, because I was like, 90s Erotica is like yeah. a multi-part series. It's like a Basic Instinct, Pretty Woman, um, Disclosure. <laughs> All the classics. Sliver. <laughs> Based on a novel by Ira Levin, who wrote Rosemary's Baby. It all comes back. It's all a circle. It's all connected. <laughs> all right. My final pick is probably the most popular and we'll talk about uh, maybe an upcoming adaptation. Yeah. It is The Changeling by Victor Laval. I read this years ago and mm. it really took me by surprise. I think because I went into it thinking it was going to be like this very big like fairy tale story and I'm not like big on fairy tales, but I was like no, whatever this is, I loved yeah. this. So um but this is about Apollo who is a rare like slash antique book dealer and we see him settling into his new life as a husband and a father to his newborn son. And we see that his wife, Emma, is not settling as well as he is. And at first he thinks it might just be like postpartum depression, but she starts making these like kind of wild claims and he doesn't know how to deal with that. One day she commits a horrifying act and then just kind of disappears and Mm. essentially leaves Apollo to like, deal with the aftermath from there it is him basically trying to put the pieces together but then we also follow him on this journey as he's trying to figure out like you know someone says like actually i heard no she's here and i heard she's here and you kind of just kind of follow him as he goes on this journey following these different leads to see if he can find his wife get his family back and learn the truth mm. about things i mean i love victor laval as a writer i still have to read lone women but so far like everything i have read by him has been fantastic this had like commentary on like social media and like modern parenting and like parenting in this like digital age and privacy and and i think we talked about how this is going to be like an adaptation soon and i'm just like i'm very interested to see what they do with this because this source material is so good and i mean as you can imagine set in new york city i didn't really get into like too much <laughs> of setting, but some of that journey is through new york but this to me was fridge. There was a lot of unsettling imagery. There was definitely freezer moments. There's definitely mm. like a lot of moments of like high tension. But you've read this too, right? Oh yeah. This is this of your three picks. This is the one I have read. Yeah, I adore this book. I love uh, everything I've ever read of Victor's. Um, and one of the one of the things specifically I love about the Changeling, which you've already alluded to, is that it's like this. It's this mystical journey through New York City. And the thing a lot of people forget about New York City, and like we haven't even really touched on in in our uh, conversation thus far, but it is a very big part of living here, is that the boroughs all have like such a a distinct 
uh, feeling and vibe, uh, and that there's a lot of New York City life, despite it being very compact and very like urban and stuff like that. There's so much. Uh, there's so much green. There's so much. Uh, uh, there's so much wildlife. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to move here. I grew up in the desert. Uh, and I like, you know, I grew up in just like sun and dirt and cactus and always loved how New York was like full of trees and greenery. And like, you know, people forget that like the Bronx is the greenest. It's just full of, uh, you know, giant parks and yeah. lakes and rivers. Like I still get a kick out of like going over a river every day. Like bodies of water are still fascinating to me. Um, and a big part of, uh, the changeling too, are, um, you know, to not spoil anything, but there are, there are all these little like islands all around, uh, uh, Manhattan and the Bronx and Queens and stuff like that. And, uh, these islands are kind of uninhabited and wild, or there are like old ruins there, r American ruins. So they're only like, you know, a hundred years old at most. Relatively. Um, yeah, exactly. That's as old as we get in this country. <laughs> uh, but still like there's this feeling of like abandoned, uh, uh, like people-less properties in the most congested city in the country. So it's like, he really touches on that, that really surreal, as you said, like kind of fairy tale feeling of like, you know, even when I was living in like Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is like deep, deep Brooklyn, like, you know, South Brooklyn, there were a couple parks where you could just suddenly like realize that you're kind of lost and you're just like around trees. Uh, and it's just this weird feeling of like civilization suddenly feels very far away. Yeah. Um, and he captures that so beautifully. Um, he also wrote uh, uh, The Ballad of Black Tom, which is mm -hmm phenomenal and another like that that uh, uh this was not one of my picks but you could almost say that uh that novella or the no uh, the story that it's based on or responding to i should say uh which is hp lovecraft's the horror in red hook or at red hook i think um which is just like an appallingly racist it, it's like hp lovecraft at his worst you know those it's one of those stories that you kind of discuss <laughs> the downsides of H.P. Lovecraft with because uh, it's so he's so scared of non-white people and the fact that he moved to Red Hook, Brooklyn uh, is so hilarious and awful uh, and so the fear of the other just like exudes off the page in that short story and and Victor Laval kind of took that story and turned it into something so beautiful and poignant and layered uh, he's just so great He's so fucking good. Yeah, and I can't wait for for that series. It's I it's such a sprawling novel that I think it's gonna lend itself so well to yeah. the episodic. Um my I'm gonna blast through my fourth one <laughs> or my third one just to get to my to my fourth one. My my third one is kind of similar uh in that it's like a very literary novel. Um so this also spoiler, this will be a this maybe won't even be like a, a fridge. This is kind of like the recliner in the living room uh, sort of novel because it's 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 a Pulitzer Prize. It's Zone One by Colson Whitehead, uh, but it's just such a great New York story. It's it's post-apocalyptic, post-zombie apocalypse, uh, and it's about essentially a, a this guy who is uh, part of a cleanup crew who has three days uh, to clean up the dead from downtown Manhattan. Uh, and as he's doing this, it's a lot of flashbacks. It's very literary. 
but it's him uh, you know, just kind of thinking back on what the zombie apocalypse has been like, how it has changed the world, how it has changed civilization. Mm-hmm. But the landscape is all very New York. Uh, and it's just this, it's just a great, uh, especially if you lived through uh, the pandemic uh, in New York City. It's just is so evocative of that feeling of like the streets are empty and something horrible has happened. Um, and it's great. It's such a great book. It's so it's beautifully written. It's it's Colson fucking Whitehead, of course. It's just it's brilliant. Um, but my fourth and like biggest pick for New York novel um it's not even a novel. It is a series of novels. But as <laughs> as the Stephen King freak, I just have to shoehorn it into this conversation, which is the Dark Tower series is quintessential New York genre uh, fiction. A huge chunk of the Dark Tower series from book two on is set in New York City, which is fucking crazy considering it, it's his big fantasy epic it takes place in midworld and it's a different dimension and it's the tower and it's you know this whole cosmic thing but so much of it comes back to new york city and specifically to to one intersection in new york city where uh, a rose is growing in a vacant lot um and he's got these characters eddie dean and 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 uh, susanna dean uh nay odetta holmes uh, and Detta Walker and Jake Chambers, like they're all these New York characters. Uh, and it is so, uh, uh, it is so vibrantly New York. There's so many through, through books uh, two through seven. There are just so many great set pieces that occur in New York. Uh, there's a big plot point uh, that is about like haggling over New York real estate and like trying <laughs> to like sell a deed for a, a vacant lot. Um, and uh, corporate overlords trying to buy that lot out from under you. And it's just uh, the weirdness of New York, the, uh, you know, there's a phenomenon that they, that they get into, especially in, in book six, Song of Susanna, uh, of walk-ins. And that, that stuff takes place in Maine where they're talking about walk-ins. But that feeling of walk-ins is, again, like hearkening back to the Audrey Rose discussion, it, just that feeling of like, random people are going to walk into your life in this city and they they could be from a different dimension they could be a gunslinger from another world from a fictional world just kind of inserting himself into your uh into your life um and uh the dark tower series is just so and i never hear it discussed as like a new york series but it is so that is like a good 50 percent of the entire saga takes place in New York. And Stephen King in general is thought of as like, you know, the main writer, main with an E at the end, writer. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, But so many of his books have incredibly memorable moments in New York, like The Stand and The Dark Half and uh, The Breathing Method and, and uh, you know, just a bunch of other uh, uh, stories that we've already discussed. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm making a plea for Stephen King to be also thought of as a, as a New York <laughs> writer. Uh, and I think the dark tower as his like central opus of his works, uh, is, um, is kind of like the biggest case point for that. Uh, I put this, I mean, the dark tower has moments of horror and great horror. So I'm going to put it in the freezer. Um, but it's seven books and some of them are really thick so it's going to fill your freezer up yeah. uh it's it's a pretty hefty uh freezer selection so you're going to have to like take shit out to fit it in there um so it's a complicated freezer book some of the <laughs> books can maybe go in the fridge um but i'm a big tower junkie so uh, uh tower for life oh, you're kind of blowing my mind i 
have been very intimidated by the Dark Tower series just because yeah. they are there's so many of them. Uh-huh. They a lot of them are not small. And because it is like this whole fantasy world that I'm like, am I ready to like fully dive in? But I had no idea that so many of them were set in New York. Yeah. It's it's a huge uh starting from book two. Uh so book one Forgive me while I go on a tower rant. Uh, everyone can tune out for a few minutes. Um, book one is notoriously obtuse, and he's writing in a, in a strange style for him. It's one of the only books he's ever like actually like rewritten as a more established writer to just try and like make up for how kind of user unfriendly it is. Uh, and it's this weird like Western sci-fi sort of vibe, and the protagonist is very unlikable on purpose, and he's just like, this really closed off emotionless killing machine and uh uh it takes place in this very weird deserty world and it's just strange a lot of people have a really hard time getting into the series because of book one i love book one i think it's great and it's you know it scratches a very specific itch uh but you just kind of got to get through book one if you're not feeling it and then you get to book two and book two is suddenly like stephen king the thriller writer steps in and he's like oh right uh, uh i write pop fiction and it's a completely different vibe uh, and very, very light spoilers. But uh, uh, he basically has his cowboy character, his like Clint Eastwood character, the gunslinger, uh, starting the book on a beach. And the gunslinger finds a series of freestanding doors in the middle of the beach. And every time he opens one of these doors, he falls into another person's mind huh. in another world. And so... The first person he falls into is a heroin junkie in New York City. And so it's this fish out of water adventure story of this guy who's like smuggling drugs on a plane. Uh, oh. And like the gunslinger like helps him figure out how to smuggle drugs. And he has to deal with like <laughs> drug. There's literal like fucking like mafia shootouts with this guy with like oh. a gunslinger in his brain. And then the next character is a civil rights uh, uh, uh fighter uh this this rich black woman uh in another time period in new york she's like in the 60s the the junkie was in the 70s she's in the 60s uh she is also appropriately to our our earlier conversation she is uh paraplegic she's in a wheelchair uh and she's a schizophrenic and so now he's in the mind of a woman who's a schizophrenic and who can only use a wheelchair uh and so it's also about like what it's like you know it's, it's Stephen King, so grain of salt, but it's about like what it's like to be like a, a black woman on the on the forefront of the civil rights movement in New York. Yeah. Um, and then the third person is a is a serial killer in New York. Like it's just like that is book oh, okay. two, and it goes into wild directions from there. Um, so it's uh, it's shockingly user friendly after the first book, okay. uh, and it just becomes this wild ride full of very enjoyable characters. And you'll you know you'll dip back into the fantasy world in like books three and five especially and and four I guess uh, have like a lot of like fantasy thick things. No. Uh, but it winds up like I I can understand why people are intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. But like once you get into book two, you really understand that like oh this is just like a roller coaster of fucking weird <laughs> Stephen King at his like most like hey why not let's let's try this. Uh, uh, and it's, it's such a trip and yeah, New York is so key to it. Um, I, w- I weirdly have worked many jobs, uh, in the neighborhood where the, uh, um, where the, 
the the vacant lot is i actually wrote a song about the vacant lot too it's on my second album uh uh just as kind of like a little dark tower wink um uh but uh yeah it's a very new york series of books oh wow i did not know that also this has maybe been the most convinced i've been to give it a try so hell yeah hell yeah (laughs) i sold i know i sold at least like three copies of it uh because of that it podcast so if i've sold some dark tower copies too then you're welcome steve well do we have some chilling obsessions i do i certainly do um yeah i figured since we are talking about like location specific horror this episode uh my a big obsession of mine lately is indonesian horror movies um and uh specifically the movies of a filmmaker joko anwar who is brilliant um but he's he's got movies like uh, Queen of Black Magic and Impedigore and Satan Slaves, Satan Slaves Two, Colon Communion. Um, he is uh, uh, he actually just wrote Queen of Black Magic, I should say. Um, but he he and a couple of other directors. There's uh, uh, Timo Jajanto, uh, I believe it's pronounced, um, and uh, Rocky Saroya uh, have kind of filmed this like triumvirate of filmmakers who are just like putting out classic after classic horror movie and there's something about indonesian horror um that scene where it's it's so every movie i have seen uh that it uh, that was that comes from that market is so delightfully gonzo like it's like they all studied with like sam raimi or something like that so it's just like the best blood and gore and energy like there's just this great energy to these movies um, and the acting is is mostly really good. There's some like the there's some especially like uh, slightly older movies like from like ten years ago or so, where the acting is is maybe not so great, uh, or the the effects aren't so great. But like the stories are still really solid, and like just in general, uh, foreign horror tends to be my favorite anyway because I I I, I love to experience other cultures uh, through horror movies and stuff like that. Uh, and so the the culture of Indonesia too has just been like really fascinating to start learning more and more about, and, and especially with these movies, like they're very religious. Uh, it's it's uh, and so it's uh, like Satan Slaves Communion, just as an example, is all about a very specific uh, funeral rite uh, in Indonesia, and how and and the way that that is used as a source for horror is so fascinating, and it is so chilling. Uh, and it's so brilliantly done. If you liked Evil Dead Rise, the new Evil Dead movie, I highly recommend you watch Satan Slaves 2. You should watch Satan Slaves, the first one too, which is actually a remake of a, of a Indonesian horror movie from the 80s, but watch the, the remake and then watch Satan Slaves 2, Communion, because okay. it's, it's one of the best apartment building horror movies I have ever seen. It's everything I wanted Evil Dead Rise to be, which I enjoyed too, but like uh, uh, Satan Slaves is just so fucking good. So that's my chilling obsession right now. Okay. I've only seen Empedagor. Yeah. I really liked it. It's so good. And I've been meaning to check out um, his other stuff. Because I think it's on Shudder too. Yeah. Yeah, Satan Slaves and stuff is all on there. So Mm. I will have to prioritize that. My chilling obsession is that I am back in 2007 because I have a crush on Josh Groban again. And I'm singing Sweeney Todd songs. (laughs) Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. (laughs) I know. Um, I heard a bit ago that he was the new Sweeney Todd, but I think, I don't know if they just got put on Spotify or if my TikTok algorithm was like bringing them to my attention, but I started listening to 
the new revival on Broadway. And oh my gosh, I am obsessed. Yeah. Obsessed with the new Sweeney Todd. Also, I'm like, was I supposed to think Sweeney Todd was hot this whole time? Because that was not the case in 2007. And I think it is the case now. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, I've, I've heard such good things about this production. I want to see it so bad. I fucking love that show so much. I've seen so many productions of that show. The Michael Cerberus one, the, uh, the, the video, the, the PBS version of the original Broadway one. Uh, uh, I love that show. And I've heard nothing but phenomenal things yeah, I've heard this. yeah I've heard really good things so he's great did you ever see uh, or listen to Natasha Pierre in the Great Comet of 1812 mm-hmm. he that is uh, Dave Malloy uh, is one of my very very favorite musical uh, musical composers and, and uh, lyricists and he wrote this just he wrote a, I should say he wrote a phenomenal one maybe one of the best horror musicals outside of Sweeney Todd called Ghost Quartet that is absolutely brilliant and anyone who likes horror and music and musicals should absolutely stop everything and and, and listen to ghost quartet um especially the live version at mckittrick hotel it's fucking amazing it's got dark tower references it's got uh poe it's it's uh it's full of stuff uh and it's so good but he also wrote a an adaptation of 19 pages of uh uh war and peace just like a little sliver of war and peace um (laughs) Uh, Natasha and Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 and it is just like heart-rendingly beautiful I saw it when it was off Broadway and it was literally done like as like almost dinner theater like you were served food and vodka and it was like done like in a crowded room where people were just like kind of weaving in and out but Josh Groban took over the role that Dave Malloy was playing uh for the Broadway uh revival and I believe it was videotaped also okay. uh but he does a phenomenal job he's so good he's a tr- yeah. i i remember loving josh groban back when he guest starred on ally mcbeal of all things that's how <laughs> I old i know. am yeah i did not know he ever did that yeah he was he was a like a child and the plot of the episode was that ally mcbeal has a crush on a young man who sings good <laughs> which he then did again on the office <laughs> <laughs> yeah he had a bit of a niche like I'm a good looking guy who can sing so here right. go. more power to you Josh Groban yeah still doing it to this day yeah. so. <laughs> well the other tradition we have on this show is to ask our guests for a final girl song all right unsurprisingly I wrestled with this for a very <laughs> long time and I had a very long list of uh of, of finalists I'm not gonna do multiple don't worry um but I was like, oh, what would sound better in a playlist? What would yeah. be like more horror oriented? What's maybe vampire oriented for nestlings? Or what's like New York City oriented or something like that? I ultimately landed on a song uh, that is maybe not a great like playlist song, uh, but is very sentimental to me and speaks very specifically to a moment in my life when I like first moved to New York. Um, and I moved to, to New York right out of college, although New York was like, always the place I was going to live at anyway. I was raised by New Yorkers. Like I was just primed to live in New York uh, uh, for my entire life. Um, and uh, so I knew I was going to move to New York and I moved to New York with uh, uh, my fiance at the time. And it was just like three very challenging years in that horrible uh, first apartment that I described. And like I'd never experienced seasonal effective depression before. So I was having like panic attacks all the time and that, 
she and I like kept breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together. And we like lived together for all of this too. And it was just, it was just the stew of like early twenties drama. Uh, and so after we like finally broke up for the last time, I was like the quintessential sad boy, like walking around <laughs> the Lower East Side, listening to sad songs and Ani DeFranco and, you know, just postal service. And just, I was just such an early 2000s cliche. Uh, and, uh, but it was also just like, I was living in New York. It was just so romantic. It was so 20 something heartbreak romantic. Uh, and one song, one artist in particular was a big favorite of mine at the time. Uh, and he's a very New York artist. And I used to like see him hanging out uh, at the at the Pink Pony on the Lower East Side. Uh, and he was a uh, he uh, used to be like a, 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 um, a doorman at the Knitting Factory, which was a club that I hung out at all the time and uh, and and all that stuff. So it's and the song specifically, which I'll get to in a moment, the, the title, but the song specifically references also like my train stop, essentially, because uh, I lived under the J train and the only way to get on the J uh, to get into Manhattan is to take the J to Essex and Delancey where you get the F train. Uh, and this song is about the F train that I just used to spend so much of my time waiting for uh, to the point where my very first outgoing voicemail message on my early cell phone was, I can't come to the phone right now because I'm probably waiting for the F train. Uh, and so the song is Mike Doty. Thank you, Lord, for sending me the F train. Uh, which is a song I even used to busk back when I used to busk in subway stations through my thirties. Uh, I used to play this song also cause it was just very appropriate. Uh, so that's my, that's my final girl, New York song. Thank I... you Lord for sending me the F train. Oh, I'm not familiar with it. So I will have to look it up and give it a listen and add it to the list. I apologize it? if it like ends the flow, <laughs> if you're listening to it on shuffle, it's a great song, but it's not, it's not a shuffle song. You know, some final girl moments are sad. Like, a final girl is very subjective. Like, yeah. are we are we catatonic, covered in blood? Are we like fighting a bad guy? Like, what are the vibes can be different? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody final girls in their different way. Yeah, we all final girl at our own pace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like New York, we're all just final girling out here. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like loopy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if listeners will be privy to this or if Stephanie will cut it out, but Stephanie is so sick right now and has been such a champion powering through my long Sorry. fucking digressions. It's been fine because I've been like muting and like coughing my face off. I'm like, well, everyone should check out Nestlings. Comes out on Halloween. So it does. get yourself a Halloween treat and pre-order it today. It is a ton of fun. Um, should be coming out on audio then too, right? They can kind of get like it all at once. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we have a very exciting narrator who I don't think I can announce yet. But Ooh, I am excited. <laughs> I will be. I will be waiting for that announcement when it is announced. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. We have so many other topics we can we can pick we up. We really at a later can't. Date. I was so excited to do this. Like I said, I've never. I didn't say I've never been to New York. So all oh, of my, I meant to ask. Yeah. yeah I, I was going to say I'm like my New York knowledge is uh, years of watching Gossip Girl. That's and, pretty much and what it's girls like. on HBO. And yeah. I'm like, I get it. I know Upper East Side. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we all live. It is very authentic. We're the, all two, in... the two experiences. Exactly. Girl and girls. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little older too. So like I'm a little sex in the city. Like that's just my life. <laughs> Manhattan's course, with my yeah. four friends. And... That's how you guys do. That's what you <laughs> do all the time. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter or X as Books Freezer Pod, on Instagram and Threads and TikTok as Books in the Freezer, or you can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at booksinthefreezer.com. The books mentioned will be listed in the show notes for this episode, as well as various ways you can support the podcast, like becoming a Patreon supporter on Patreon. There are three tiers, I believe a one, three, and a five dollar tier with all kinds of different perks at each level, like movie nights. We recently had a movie night. We watched Evil Dead Rise on Max and had a lot of fun. So if that's something that's interesting to you, you can check that out at patreon.com com slash books in the freezer on the show notes there are several other ways you can support the show like merch or affiliate links if you are looking for a way to support the show without spending any money leaving a review on a site like apple podcasts or spotify or whatever podcast app you use is huge and so is sharing about us on social media so thank you to all of you who have taken the time to do that I'm Stephanie. You can find me on X at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on Instagram at that's what she read. And that's that's with two A's. See you next time on Books in the Freezer. Books in the Freezer.